My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. Hello. The clue is in the name. On the Bridges to the Future podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about, well, the future. Generally, my guests focus on one thing they'd like to see change. More long-termism, less loneliness, better valuing of care. But none so far have described a completely different world. That's about to change for my guest today, the economist, politician, activist and public intellectual, Yanis Varoufakis. His new book is Another Now, Dispatches from the Alternative Present. It's part manifesto, part sci-fi novel and part philosophical inquiry. Yanis, welcome. Thank you very much. How are you? All things considered, at a personal level, very well, but also very worried about the state of the world and in particular the state of my country, which after 10 years of depression is now sort of languishing in desperation. Right. Well, maybe it's those kinds of circumstances that led you to want to reimagine the whole world. And we'll come to that in a minute. I've absolutely loved reading your book. It's been a great change from the other books that I read. I value them as well. But I picked up your book and the second I started reading it, it surprised and intrigued me. And we'll get into that. But before we do, Yanis, I'm going to have to ask you to do what we ask everyone to do on this podcast, which is to answer the question, Yanis, what do you think is the big idea we need for the world after COVID? Given that there is so much to talk about and such desperate need for radical change, I shall answer your question with a very practical idea. At the moment, as you all know, central banks are printing mountain ranges of money, which unfortunately is not finding itself, its way into the pockets of people who really need it. Instead, they go into the large corporations that buy back their own shares. So, here's the idea. Cut out the middleman, the commercial banks. Have the money printing process of the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve in the United States, and so on and so forth, work in order to put money into people's accounts on the basis of universal basic payments, which can be adjusted depending on inflation, depending on how the state of the economy is during this pandemic and on the way out of it. Yeah, that's fascinating, Yanis, on all sorts of levels, and I'm sure we'll get into those. So that's one idea of the many ideas discussed in your book. So the first thing I've got to ask you is this. Why did you choose the format of what is, in part, a sci-fi novel as a way of getting across your ideas? The only alternative to that would have been to sit down and write a utopia. It would have been fun to do that too, but not as much fun as it is to create characters that allow you, as an author, to 
express your own doubts about you know your own blueprint regarding the future so since you have kindly read the book and thank you for your kind words on it you will remember that there are at least three characters they have different perspectives one is a neoliberal the other one is a feisty marxist feminist then there is a, a tech evangelist who turns tech phobic and each one of them is thus given an opportunity to express doubts that I have about my own views on what utopia should be like. And that is the best way of writing a nuanced utopia and also of criticizing my own thinking and allowing my own thinking to develop by uh, permitting the characters to have a dialogue amongst themselves, which after a while, I have to confess, while I was writing the book, halfway through writing the book, I just realized that they took on a life of their own and they were having arguments. And I felt as if I am listening in to the way in which they're arguing with one another. I found that far more intriguing and also useful in discussing with myself and potentially with my readers what the future could be like. Yeah, at times there are elements of a Socratic dialogue in this book, it seems to me, in relation to the conversations particularly between Eve and Iris. I mean, let's just explain to listeners the kind of basic concept of the book, which is that wormhole is found through advanced technology to connect to a parallel world, a parallel world which split from ours back in 2008. And in the book, we learn more and more about this new world, this other now that has been created by a variety of political activists. We find out about how they created it and we find out how it works and we interrogate that. And then alongside that, there is the kind of drama of these three characters of Eve, of Iris and of Costa. Now, I'm interested, I mean, I think it's a bit harsh, by the way, to describe Eve as a neoliberal. I think that's reducing her slightly. I think she's more interesting uh, than that. But that is one of the interesting parts of the book, is you have a character, a sympathetic character, who espouses a set of views which you have spent most of your adult life fighting against. Now, that brings me to the question, in these three characters... Yanis, do they represent different parts of you and your personality and your worldview? Or as it were, in Eve, for example, are you just putting these words, the words of your opponents into her mouth? Or is there any extent to which you're sympathetic with what she argues as she argues for a broadly free market perspective? The answer is affirmative. I've spent at least three decades teaching that kind of economics, liberal or libertarian economics. Let's not call it neoliberal. And I'm fascinated by the models and ideas of my greatest uh, philosophical and economic enemies, people like Friedrich von Hayek, even Milton Friedman. Uh, I disagree fiercely, but I respect their intellectual universe, if you want. And I think that we leftists have a lot to learn from them. And I genuinely believe that progress and, in a sense, uh, civilization must only come out can only come out of a clash of ideas. So, yes, there are, you know, I've been calling myself a libertarian Marxist for a very long time now, and that has turned against me, both libertarians and Marxists, who think that I'm a hypocrite. But I don't believe I'm a hypocrite. I believe that the only way of being a genuine left-wing Marxist is to care about freedom, 
not so much about equality or justice. Marx never cared about equality or justice. He cared about freedom. And at the same time, to be a genuine libertarian, you have to care about power and abuse of power. And, you know, Google and Amazon are just as capable of behaving like many Soviet unions as the Soviet Union was. Which comes to a core issue in the book, and one that I'd like you to open up to our listeners, which is the distinction between capitalism and markets. Because the other now that you describe is a place where, as it were, markets have been saved from capitalism. This It is a society where there are markets. In fact, probably more citizens are more involved day to day in making market choices, but it's a society where capitalism has been tamed. Tell us a bit more about this relationship between capitalism and markets, because I think people who aren't economists often conflate the two ideas, but you absolutely want to separate them in this book. Well, especially economists conflate it. <laughs> There's been a running battle between myself and my fellow economists. If you read the mathematical models taught at the best schools and universities and colleges, indeed, there is no capitalism in those economic models of capitalism. This is an absurdity that I have been you know, trying to correct <laughs> to the extent that I could in my academic career. Indeed, what you will find is the depiction of Every market, as if it is a situation where you, know, you and I are exchanging apples for oranges. The left-wing critique of capitalism is that the labor market is nothing like that. Because think about it, the moment you're employed, I mentioned Google before, let's take that example. The moment you enter into Google, you leave the market. There is no marketplace in Google. You walk into Google, there's a hierarchy. It's a very clever hierarchy, a very interesting and some might say pleasant work environment, but there's a very strict hierarchy. There is an ideology of Google. There is an aesthetic. If you look at the, you know, the color schemes and the interior decoration and so on, in that sense, it's a bit like you know, a centrally planned Soviet-like system. So that is the point that I'm making that democracy and markets stop at the gates of corporations and indeed never penetrate money markets because money markets and labor markets are nothing like you know the local farmers market or you know the high street markets they are non-market institutions where power is exercised and especially in the financial markets exorbitant power is exercised by the very very few against the interests of the very very many so in that sense it is not so controversial to be arguing like I do in the book that if you really want a market economy and a democratic liberal market economy well you have to transcend capitalism fascinating so this issue of the relationship between capitalism and markets and the attitude of your character Iris and in the end Yanis I felt probably there was more of your heart in Iris than, than any of the characters maybe that's something we can discuss in a minute when I thought hard about your other now in in some ways it's incredibly radically different you know everybody has one share in the corporation they work in there is a universal basic income banks have more or less commercial banks have more or less been abolished but yet in another way it's almost as if the question you're trying to answer is what kind of society would you need to have in order simply to stop the tendencies of capitalism towards monopoly towards rent seeking and towards corruption 
And so what I found fascinating is that in a sense, what is almost implicit in the book is you would have to have a radically different society if all you were trying to do was to restrain the natural problematic tendencies of capitalism. Is that a reasonable interpretation? Yes, and we have seen evidence of that from the failures of social democracy. Social democracy attempted, and valiantly, for quite a few decades, to civilize capitalism, to keep the, the gene in the bottle. I remember Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods and the New Deal in the United States was a remarkable attempt, effectively, to defund bankers and to limit the power of monopolies and to democratize capitalism and civilize it. And it worked for a while, but it never works for long enough. At some point, capitalism finds a way of buying out the regulators, of usurping capital controls, of doing what happened with the, the exuberance, the irrational exuberance of financialization from the 1970s onwards. So yes, the answer to your question is affirmative again. I do believe strongly that uh, unless we democratize the labor process, the working process, unless we have corporations that operate on the basis of one person, one share, one vote, and unless we do away with commercial banks, why not each one of us having a free digital bank account with the Bank of England in your case or the European Central Bank in our case? Unless we have these you know, quite uh, soft but at the same time radical transformation, capitalism is always going to produce exorbitant power, oligarchy, stagnation, climate change, and in the end... A lot of unhappiness, even by very, very rich people. Look at all these multi-billionaires who are worried about inequality. The only reason why they are worried about inequality is because they feel unsafe in their own gated communities. Because they look at the world around them and they realize, smart people like Warren Buffett and you know, Bill Gates, they realize that this is not sustainable, even for them. I mean, there are so many points in the book, you know, where I, I, I kind of wanted to put it down in order that I could simply reflect on the point. I didn't have the time because I knew we were talking and I, I wanted to get to the end. But one of the points you make, for example, is that in order to acquire power over people, the things that we have to do to ourselves mean that in the end, we don't benefit from that process of acquiring power over people. But that also takes me to my question about Iris, who's an absolutely fascinating character in the book. I wonder, Yanis, was she based on anybody you knew? She's based on a number of people that I've known. And on one that I haven't had the chance of meeting, even though we had one letter exchanged a long, long time ago. There are men in Iris, there are women in Iris. She has accumulated within her a number of my favorite people in the world. But let me tell you where the name comes from. And the one that I have not met and whom, with whom I had one letter exchanged. Can you guess whom I'm referring to? A well-known author. Iris Murdoch? Yes, indeed. Ah, there you have it. Fascinating. <laughs> so she wrote to you? No, I wrote to her. I had already been a fan of her novels, philosophical novels, when I realized that she had written a small pamphlet, a tiny book, back in the 1950s, maybe early 1950s, which was a pure philosophical treatise, and it was entitled The Sovereignty of Good. And I have to tell you that when I read that book, it changed my life to a very large extent. And so I wrote to her just to thank her for that, and remarkably, I received a handwritten letter. That was back in the 1980s, of course. So the reason I was so fascinated by Iris is that, you know, here is a book and I'm reading it and I'm thinking, okay, this is great. You know, I'm enjoying it. It's a fascinating description of a kind of better world. 
And then Iris, as the book develops, is not enthusiastic about this new world. And I want to explore why she's not enthusiastic, because I think each element of her reservation is fascinating. So the first is... She's not enthusiastic about the other now because whilst capitalism has been tamed, it is a society of strong market relationships. And she, as an idealist, she despises the idea of any kind of transactional element to relationships. She wants relationships to be fundamentally in society, be fundamentally based on kind of unconditional love. So to what extent do you share Iris's concern that if we had a society that was post-capitalist, but still use market relations as the fundamental way of making things happen, driving change, that would still be in some ways rather a kind of barren culture? It is my fear. It is my fear. As an economist and a socialist, when people ask me, okay, mate, you don't like capitalism, what's the alternative? Instinctively, I come up with a democratic socialist blueprint, which is, of course, what has been the skeleton of this book. But at the very same time, as a radical humanist, I would like to live in a world where people do, you know, good things for the hell of it, not because of what they're going to get in return. And that's where Aris Murdo comes in with a sovereignty of good, that the good person is like an artist, like a sculptor who cannot simply not sculpt. <laughs> they would rather die than not produce their work of art, and they're not producing their work of art in order to gain something, either kudos or money. It's because they can't stop themselves from doing it. It would be wonderful to live in a society like that. But at the very same time, you can't have a political agenda and an economic blueprint based on this kind of radical humanism. So I'm conflicted. And the best way of expressing this inner conflict of mine is by, you know, having Iris in there, becoming a dissident in the other now, and also expressing something that, you know, my mother and my grandmother taught me. I have had the great fortune of being raised by women who were feminists a long, long time ago, who taught me that, you know, even if socialism comes and we live in the best of all possible worlds, patriarchy, as Iris says in the book, is a cockroach that is very, very hard to kill. And that takes me on to Iris's second lack of enthusiasm, as it were, for the other now, which is she doesn't like the fact that it has become a world of political correctness and people kind of wanting to kind of make sure that they don't do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. She despises that. And I wonder whether, Yanis, is this you having a bit of a dig at the cultural left? Yes, I suppose so. But it's not just me, because there are, as I said, it's not just Iris Murdoch inside my Iris. There are other people, some of them are male. A great friend comes to mind who's gay and who introduced himself to me back when I first met him in 1988 as queer, refusing to call himself gay and saying to me, you know, the last thing I ever wanted when demonstrating against police brutality against gays and lesbians was for us to have, you know, a right to have a bleeding Miami-like wedding. Uh, this is what, not the kind of liberation that I fought for. So there are different strands of Iris in there that represent women's liberation, gay liberation movements, who now look at the manner in which their own movements uh, degenerate into a kind of consumerist culture with formal rights uh, and intersectionality and so on, having lost the view of themselves as subversive freedom fighters. 
And then there's a final bit of Iris, which takes me on to another issue I want to discuss with you, Jonas, which is that she, in the end, she doesn't want to go to a good society because what actually drives her is being a dissident, is fighting against the system. She doesn't want to be in a system that is broadly benign. And there's a twist at the end, which I'm not going to reveal to people, which kind of underlines this need for her to push against the system. It reminded me a bit of... There's a moment in the film Green Card with, I think it's Andy McDowell and Gerard Depardieu, where he, you remember, he's a kind of chubby, politically incorrect French chef, and she's a very right-on New Yorker, I think. And they're looking through her album of photographs, and she's on a protest. And he says to her, he says, oh, what, what are you protesting against? And she said, oh, you know, everything. And there's a quizzical look on his face. And I'm kind of interested in this idea of, Iris really always wanting to push against the system. And then in the sense, that is the disposition of the radical left, that what it is good at is pushing against the system. And we've already seen in the last few days, and I think you've been part of this as well, Yanis, that everyone on the hard left is saying, Joe Biden, no good. You know, he would have done much better if he'd run on a more radical platform. Look at his awful neoliberal past. America's a kind of broken empire anyway. Don't raise your hopes. And I've just written something about how that makes me feel so miserable that radicals are kind of already writing this off, even though, you know, we had a little victory and, and can't we hold on to it? And can't we hope? To what extent, you know, is this, this kind of notion on the left that you always have to be opposed to stuff? You always have to be saying, don't trust whoever's in power. You know, this is Iris's point. Whoever is in power, they're going to be a problem because that's the nature of power. Is this where you come from? And do you recognise, in a sense, the, the problem of the activists left having this disposition in relation to the fact that we do actually need practical change. We do need things to improve. Of course we do. And I don't disagree with you there, but I don't see any incongruity between the dissident in Iris and in me, and also your point that we need to make practical, tangible steps towards change. So let me try to separate those two issues, if I may. Firstly, you'll recall that Iris is buried in the first page of the book in a red and black coffin, red representing the you know, revolutionary spirit in her heart, but also black to remind us, as she always did, of the darkness within us. So she's not just railing against the system, she's also very worried about her own self. And let's face it, humanity, we all harbor within us a degree of darkness that we must beware. And that's not a bad thing, especially us men and white men in particular. We need to constantly be vigilant regarding our own tendencies towards creating and reproducing power grids vis-a-vis -vis other people. I think that is the mark of a responsible human being. Let me now turn to the particular example you gave regarding Joe Biden. Well, let me tell you my position about Joe Biden. Before the election, I went public with my recommendation to anybody who listens to me in the United States, and I do have some friends there. The recommendation was very simple. Hold your nose and vote for Biden. Why hold your nose? Because Biden has always been on the wrong side of history on almost everything. He's against Medicare for all. He was in favor of the Iraq war. But nevertheless, because I think we agree on this, we need to make progress, even if it is you know, in small, tiny steps. And anything that throws Trump out 
must be a good thing. <laughs> so I supported a vote for Biden, as did Bernie Sanders, as did Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as did all of us radical leftists. We never went against Biden and we never asked people to stay at home. Even in 2016, I supported a vote for Hillary Clinton, despite my huge opposition to her very existence, <laughs> philosophically and aesthetically and politically. So on this, I think we're on the same page. Now, when the result came out, I was bereft. And I was bereft because I still think, to this day, after the result, that it's the worst possible outcome. I wanted a Biden victory with a landslide, or at least a comfortable victory. Why? Because there was an agreement between Biden and Bernie Sanders. The two teams had worked well together, and I know that because I had something to do with people in that team, hammering out a Green New Deal for the United States, which would have been a substantial improvement for both the United States and the rest of the world. And the reason why I lament the actual outcome is because the wafer-thin victory of Biden, the fact that he's not controlling the Senate, is giving him a get-out-of-the-Green-New-Deal card. <laughs> it is allowing him to liberate himself from any commitment to progressive economic and social policy in the United States. And he's already done that. And they've already turned against the left in the United States, the left that put them in the White House. So... I, you know, I don't believe in uh, being rejectionist in a hard left kind of way, but I don't believe also in wishful thinking. Biden is going to prove a terrible president, and the next four years are going to be a major defeat for progressive policies in the United States because the Trumpists are going to be more than united than ever. They've already taken over the Republican Party. The Republican Party will become even more Trumpist in four years than it is today. The next two years of a slump, economic slump, which is given, are going to be blamed on the left of uh, the Democratic Party. Already you have the radical center, the Clintonites, and all the representatives of big business and Wall Street who are now going to be occupying the White House with no commitment to a Green New Deal or to social policy or to Medicare for all, or any of that stuff. They are going to be turning against the left. I'm afraid this was the worst possible outcome. Now, you see, this is where I completely disagree with you, but I want to suggest a way in which we might be able to go forward, right? So I, what fascinates me about that is that, you know, your book is full of imagination, it's full of possibility, historical contingency. And then you say, well, Biden is going to fail, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And I want to go, where's your imagination gone, Yanis? Where's your, the possibility that a different kind of leadership empowers a different kind of people. The possibility that when Trump loses power and his crimes are exposed, that it marks the high water point of populism, that leaders in countries, you know, like Hungary and Brazil and Poland, who have been empowered by Trump, are now disempowered because they no longer have somebody who takes them. So that, that all sorts of things are possible now. And there you are, a man of such imagination, wanting to predict nothing other than doom. So uh, here is a thought about how we might go forward, because it seems to me that the split between the reformist left and the radical left, you know, I am your enemy, Yanis. I work for Tony Blair. You know, I would be up against the wall when your revolution comes. But the split between us is catastrophic because as we have seen from the right and as you have seen in your own career, the right are perfectly happy to join forces whenever it's contingent for them so to do. But the left is so purist and on both sides, I'm sure. Now, one idea for how we might go forward in this, because 
I think you underestimate how much reformists like me ultimately would like to see social transformation. And I think possibly I underestimate the degree to which someone who is ideologically opposed to reformism you is actually very pragmatic in your day-to-day life. Perhaps we are less dissimilar than we think. But in your book, you talk about citizens' assemblies. So in the other now, one tool that is used a lot is to bring ordinary citizens together in a process of deliberation, which we now know works all around the world. And for example, they make judgments about development issues, or they make judgments about whether corporations are behaving in a socially responsible, companies behaving in a socially responsible way. Is it through direct citizen engagement, Yanis, that we can find a way for the reformist left and the radical left to work together? Is it by bringing the issues that we disagree about and bringing them to deliberative fora? Because I suspect that if we did, people like me, reformists like me, would be slightly challenged because we'd find that citizens were more willing to countenance radical change than we sometimes imagine. I also have a hunch that radicals might be challenged by the kind of I'm not saying you're guilty of this, but the slight tendency on the left to assume that because working class people don't necessarily have pure left wing values, they're suffering from false consciousness. And I think that's a patronising view and actually you need to listen to people much more closely. So anyway, in order that this conversation between us, which I very much enjoyed, is not a very rare example of radicals and reformers talking to each other. Do you think that use of deliberation, listening to citizens themselves might be another way of overcoming what is ultimately a very damaging gulf between different strands of progressivism. Absolutely. But let me just uh, correct you. If there is a left-wing revolution, I'm going to be the first one against the wall, not you. (laughs) I have no doubt about that. I'm too liberal or libertarian. (laughs) And I very much fear that you'll probably be part of the the Politburo and I will be against the wall. (laughs) If I I may, (laughs) you know, be provocative enough to say that. No, but look, I agree entirely with you that the best way of moving forward is through an eclectic use of ideas coming from, even from the libertarians, even from the radical right. I'm very eclectic. As I said, I, you know, I've been shaped also by people like von Hayek, and I owe him a debt of gratitude, even Thatcher. So maybe I'm, you know, I'm a stupidly liberal, but I agree with you. I wish we could have this agreement that we extend the franchise, but the genuine franchise, the decision-making process to randomly selected citizens who can listen to you, they can listen to me, and they can then make a sovereign decision. I'd love that. But my fear Matthew, is that there is no soft left reformist going to, who's going to enter the, the White House under Biden. What we are going to have is yet another spin of the wheel of the, if you want, the revolving doors between Wall Street and the administration. Uh, you're going to have the Fed continue to print trillions of dollars, giving it to Amazon, giving it to Google to buy back their own shares uh, without any significant investment in good quality jobs. You know, the Green New Deal that Bernie Sanders hammered out with Joe Biden was not particularly radical. It was something that would be completely down your alley. It was a New Deal kind of thing. Um, And certainly not moving in, in any kind of way towards socialism or anything resembling socialism. And it is the loss of that which I lament. In other words, it's the loss of the possibility of a soft left reformist approach that would be much closer to your 
soul than to mine that I'm lamenting. Now, you, are, you said at the beginning, where's my imagination? Well, my imagination is here in order to come up with proposals that you and I could work towards. It's not here in order to create wishful thinking. In the same way that in my book, I do not go back to uh, some kind of notion of social democracy's restoration, because I don't believe that social democracy is possible anymore, given the way that power has concentrated so heavily in the hands of so few, given the manner in which financial markets and share markets have coalesced. So I hope I'm wrong. I genuinely hope I'm wrong. And Joe Biden proves me wrong. But I feel that, that I'm right. Well, I guess time will tell and maybe the electors of Georgia will have some influence over the outcome as well. Yanis, thank you again for the book. You know, I'm going to be honest with you about the book. I picked it up and I started reading it and my heart slightly sank. I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be a very kind of clunky book in which these thinly drawn characters are going to have a kind of political conversation with each other and it's not really going to work. But, you know, the more I read, the more it got to me the more i got interested in the characters the more intrigued i became so i you know it's a very bold thing to write a book like this Giannis, and in the end it really worked for me so thank you for writing the book and thank you for spending time with me today and identifying the things that we agree about as well as those things that we don't yanis berdafakis thank you so much for your time well thank you and thank you for the kind words that's it for this episode of bridges to the future But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.